Acts chapter 11, and let's just start from verse 1. Acts chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and he didst eat with them. Let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this most wonderful day. We thank you, Lord, for the time we've already spent around your word this morning. And Lord, we pray now as we come around the book of Acts again, pray that you would bless this time. Lord, you give us understanding of your word and the truths contained therein. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now this morning as your servant, that you give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that it would be your words your thoughts, Lord, and that, Lord, you would speak to each of our hearts uh, through your word today. May you be honored, may you be glorified. Uh, through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, in Acts chapter 10, which we uh, finished looking at last Sunday, we saw the gospel message go forth unto the Gentiles for the very first time. We saw the, the great commission being fulfilled, okay, that they were to take the gospel unto all nations. And so we saw the door opened as Cornelius and those that were present in his house accepted the Lord by faith. They received Christ and the Holy Spirit came upon them and indwelt them. Now as we come to chapter 11, we have recorded for us the reaction of the church at Jerusalem to the new work that's now taking place among the Gentiles. And we must remember, you know, these ones in Jerusalem, these Jews... They had not experienced what Peter had. Okay? They had not been there to see Peter's vision from the Lord. They had not uh, seen the work in Cornelius' house. They had not seen the response. They had not seen any of this taking place. And so they were still uh, very much prejudiced against the Gentiles. It's interesting, I was telling to Tim this morning that Tim preached about prejudice again this morning. And we just finished talking about that in Acts chapter 10. It's amazing how the Lord works these things together. You know, the, these, these Jews still had a prejudice, okay? Peter has learned his lesson, hasn't he? And he's been taught by the Lord. But these Jews here in Jerusalem still are quite prejudiced against the Gentiles. You know, to them, you know, to hear that Peter, one of the apostles, one of their leaders, has gone into the house of a Gentile shocks them. You know, they're shocked to hear this. You know, tradition told them that a Gentile had to become a Jew before they could be accepted. You know, they had to become a Jew, they had to be circumcised, they had to submit to the Jewish laws before they could be admitted into the Jewish congregation, before they could be accepted. But here these Gentiles in Cornelius' house are accepted and they get saved without ever becoming Jews, without becoming proselyte Jews. And because of this there's now a crisis, if you like, developing within the church. And so a hearing is called to air the whole matter publicly, to deal with this issue. You know, this crisis, if not dealt with, you know, has real potential to hinder the work of the Lord, doesn't it? It has real potential to split the church and to cause some major problems if it's not dealt with swiftly and in the correct manner. You know, the crisis that they face is essentially one of internal contention. There's uh, disunity. 
amongst the brethren here. They're not all of one mind. And so it has potential. And, you know, this is dangerous for any church, isn't it? When there's disunity amongst the brethren, when there's, we're not of one mind. Well, this morning now we want to consider this public hearing and look at the response of Peter and indeed the church at Jerusalem. So notice firstly, if you would, this morning, we see that Peter faces criticism. Peter faces criticism. Just read with me again, verse 1, it says, And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. <clears throat> you know, news of what's happened at Caesarea soon travels swiftly throughout Judea. And news travels fast. We're told in verse 1 that soon the apostles and brethren in Judea have heard about everything that's taken place. They've heard about Cornelius' house and how they've accepted Christ and been saved. Now we need to remember that because of the persecution under Saul, the Christians have spread out, haven't they? There's, there's been a scattering of the believers. And so the Christians have spread out right throughout the region of Judea and indeed further as well. And so this means that news travels quickly, doesn't it? You know, news travels from Caesarea to the next town and it travels quickly between the believers all the way back to Jerusalem. You know, the reality is that Peter is slower than the news. Okay, the news gets there before Peter. They're already aware of what's taken place. In verse 2 it says, And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. They were ready and waiting for him. They already knew. Okay, the news had reached Jerusalem before Peter gets there. And so they'd already developed a conclusion, hadn't they? They'd already made a judgment without ever getting the facts from Peter himself. At the end of chapter 10 and verse 48, it says, um, And when he commanded uh, them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Chapter 10 ends by telling us that you know, these new Christians, these new Gentile Christians, they compelled Peter to stay with them for a few days. And so we're not told how long he stays in Caesarea. It could have been a few days, it could have been weeks. Before he starts traveling back to Jerusalem, before he actually arrives in Jerusalem, months may have even passed before he gets there. So how long exactly takes place between the end of chapter 10 and the start of chapter 11, we're not sure. But the point is that news has traveled all the way throughout the region of Judea and all the way back to Jerusalem. As I said, they've developed an opinion. And so a crisis is brewing. The end of verse 2 there, we're told that they that are of the circumcision contended with him. <clears throat> you know, Peter arrives back in Jerusalem to find this group waiting for him. This group waiting for him, and they're waiting to correct him. You see, as far as they were concerned, Peter is in the wrong. Peter has done the wrong thing. Peter has sinned, and Peter needs correcting. Peter needs to be told off. Yes, he's an apostle, but Peter needs to be put in his place because of what he's done. And so they're waiting to contend with him. You know, these ones here are identified as being of the circumcision. You know, that tells us that this is a 
particular group of Jewish believers. Okay, It's not necessarily the whole church at Jerusalem. This is more a select group of Jewish believers. You know, these are those ones that we later come to know as Judaizers. Okay, these are the ones who wanted to constrain the Gentiles to be circumcised and then to keep the Jewish law to be saved or to add to their spirituality. Okay, and they're possibly the same group that we see later on in Acts chapter 15. Just turn over there, Acts 15. <clears throat> Acts 15 verse 1. It says, And certain men which, were ca- sorry, which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through uh, Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there arose... Sorry, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. In Acts chapter 15 here, we've got a, a similar group, okay, with a similar uh, idea, you know, demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised, that somehow it's necessary for their salvation, and that they need to keep the Jewish law, the Jewish ceremonial law to be holy. See, this seems to be the same group that contends with Peter here. That's why they're identified as they of the circumcision. It's this, these ones who have this really strong opinion about the circumcision and Jewish traditions. And basically, you know, they're a legalistic group of Jews. That's basically what these ones are. They're a group of legalistic Jews who thought that their circumcision set them apart, that their circumcision and their keeping of the ceremonial law made them holier than others. You see, they were adding their Jewish customs to the Christian faith. They were adding to the Christian faith. In verse 3, it's interesting, we're told exactly what it is that offends these believers the most. Okay, it says in verse 3, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and did eat with them. You notice here in verse 3, you know, it's not that Peter had preached to Cornelius that offended them most. It wasn't that he preached to the others in the house that offended them. It wasn't that these people had believed and Peter had baptized them that offended these ones the most. No, what's offended them is that he's broken Jewish custom. He's broken Jewish ceremonial law and he's entered into the house of a Gentile and had food with them, sat down and had a meal with them. That's what offends them. That's what they're upset with here. This is what upsets them most. You see, they couldn't believe that he had entered into a Gentile's house. And not only that, he'd actually had fellowship with them. He had a meal with them. You know, here we see clearly the legalistic attitude of these Jews, don't we? We see where their focus is. You know, this is the attitude of the Pharisees, isn't it? Go back with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark 
Mark chapter 2 and begin reading verse 13. It says, And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw, Le- um, saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And certainly him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at me in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. And they came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, here we have Christ and he sits down to have a meal and he sits down and he's joined by publicans and sinners. And this offends the scribes and Pharisees, doesn't it? It offends them greatly. Why? Because they were legalists. As far as they were concerned, Christ was breaking ceremonial law. You know, by having food with these publicans and sinners, Christ was unclean because he'd had a meal with these ones. Keeping company with sinners. You see, their whole concern was the outward appearance, wasn't it? It's all about outward appearance. It was all about what people were looking at and seeing. This is their focus. It's all about keeping the law and not the moral law. Okay, It's all about keeping the ceremonial law, their Jewish traditions and customs, as an external show of righteousness. You know, Christ rebuked them for this attitude, didn't he? He rebuked them and said, you know, they, they that are sick need the position, not those that aren't sick. He rebukes them saying, you know, the spiritual need of these people was far greater, was of greater importance. They needed him. They needed Christ. You know, this is exactly what Peter faces here now from these legalistic Jews. You know, they were sticklers for the law. Perhaps many of them were, as in Acts chapter 15, many of them were Pharisees who'd gone and saved. So they're sticklers for the law and they're offended that Peter has broken the ceremonial law and he's met with these Gentiles and had a meal with them. You know, to them, Peter was defiled. Peter had defiled himself because he'd gone in and had fellowship with these Gentiles. You know, who knows what kind of unclean food they'd served up to him. You know, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, who knows what kind of food they served you, Peter? You might have eaten meat often under an idol, Peter. Peter, you're unclean. You've sinned. You're spiritually not right with God. That's what they're thinking. That's their attitude here. You see, they thought that the keeping of the Jewish ceremonial law affected their holiness, affected their standing before God. They were concerned only with the external. When they should have been focusing on the spiritual, should have been focusing on the heart. See, their mentality is really the mentality that Peter had before he saw the vision, isn't it? Acts chapter 10, verse 14, what did Peter say to the Lord? Acts chapter 10, verse, starting verse 13, it says, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, Peter's response was exactly the same, wasn't it? Not so, Lord, I can't eat that. It's unclean, it's uncommon it's i can't touch that 
Why did Peter respond like that? Because Peter thought that by breaking Jewish ceremonial law, he would be defiling himself spiritually. He had the same attitude as these Jews. You see, these believers in Jerusalem, they needed to learn what Peter now knew, didn't they? They needed to learn what Peter knew and understood for themselves. That food and company couldn't defile you spiritually. Food and company does not defile you spiritually. It's the heart that matters with God. You know, Christ taught this clearly to his disciples while he was on earth. Turn over to Mark, uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 15 with me. Matthew 15. Matthew 15 and verse 16, it says, And Jesus said, Are ye, are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever sorry, entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the drought? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, these things, sorry, these are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Now Christ here in Matthew chapter 15, he taught exactly this truth, didn't he, to his disciples. That the keeping of rules and regulations does not make you spiritual, does not make you clean and right before God. And by not keeping them, doesn't make you unclean. Christ says it's what proceeds from the heart that matters. It's actions that come from the heart, which then result in disobeying the moral law. That's what is defiling a man. It's the keeping or the defiling of the moral law, those things that are clearly said to be sin. We know them as the Ten Commandments. That's God's moral law. That's the law that still applies to us, doesn't it? Okay? That's God's moral law, and it's the breaking of the moral law which comes from the heart. That's what defiles a man. Not breaking ceremonial law, not washing your hands. That does not make you a sinner. Not eating with certain people. Not you know, um, uh, eating certain food, not eating other food. It doesn't defile you. It doesn't affect your spirituality. You know, this legalistic mentality is still something we have to deal with today, isn't it? It's still something that enters into the church and we have to be aware of it. Make sure that we ourselves don't do it. You know, judging another's salvation or spirituality based upon what they do, based upon the external. And you know, often it's based upon our own set of standards too. It's our own set of standards, our own ideas about what we should do and what we shouldn't do, and we judge each other based on that. You know, I have a list of rules that I think is right, and that's right, my conviction is, but Darren doesn't agree with them all, so I think Darren's a wicked sinner, you know, or he's unsaved. That's legalism, judging his spirituality and his salvation based upon those traditions or Um, my own convictions, whatever they might be, but they're not based on the moral law. That's the point. It's not the moral law we're talking about here. You must understand that the keeping of rules, standards, regulations doesn't make us holy. It doesn't make us holy. 
It's our hearts that matter before God and our hearts then produce right actions, don't they? If our hearts are right with God. You know, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul would later address these same issues in Romans chapter 14. Just turn over there, Romans 14. It's a passage I'm sure most of us know well. It's the the weaker and the stronger brother. Matthew, uh, sorry, Romans. Romans chapter 14. I just want to read from verse 1. It says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, Romans 14 is this classic passage, a passage that is often also misunderstood. But it's a passage on the weaker and the stronger brother. You know, here we see Paul outlines that, you know, for some Christians, they may struggle to eat all things, and it, to them it does defile them. So they have a conviction they won't eat all things. For someone else, they have no problem with eating everything. It doesn't defile them. They have no problem. They have no conviction about it. The point is, neither is to judge each other. The one eating is not to judge the one who doesn't eat. The one who doesn't eat is not to judge the one who does eat. Because both have to come up to their own conclusion before God. Why? Because they're not breaking the moral law. It's got nothing to do with the moral law. It's something we do on the outside that is a personal matter between us and God. A personal decision. Now, it was the same concerning the Holy Days. In verse 5, he says, One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. That phrase at the end there, it's important, isn't it? Every man has to be persuaded in his own mind, have their own convictions on the matter. You see, these things are personal convictions. Now, as I said before, understand... We're not talking about things that are clearly breaking God's moral law. You can't say to me, I have a personal conviction that it's okay to steal. I'm sorry, no, it's not. Okay? You can't have a personal conviction about that. These are the things that are not to do with God's moral law. They're simply things that you and I have a personal conviction about. I'm going to eat this. I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. And they're not things that are against God's word. They're a personal conviction. 
We're talking about things that have no effect upon our spirituality. And the point is, we're not to judge someone else's spirituality based on what they eat or don't eat, or on what days they keep or don't keep, or whether they have a TV or don't, or whether they play sport or don't. And we could go on, couldn't we? None of those things are found in God's Word. Now, what we do with those things must be honouring to God, yes, but it's a personal conviction, isn't it? If I have a personal conviction I can't have a TV because I struggle with it, fine, that's my conviction. But I can't judge you based on that. We could go on and we could list thing after thing. The point is, none of these things are from God's word, are they? We have no right to judge one another. Now, verse 12 is really the, the conclusion of the matter there in Romans 14. It says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Who do we have to give an account of our actions to? God. That's who we're answerable to. We have to give an account to him. He knows our hearts, doesn't he? He knows our actions are produced by our heart. He knows our motives. God is judge. Not me. Not you. God is judge. You know, when we come back to Acts chapter 11 here, Peter knew his heart, didn't he? Peter knew in his heart that he was not entering into this man's house to sin. Peter was entering in. Why? Because God told him to. He was following the instruction of the Lord. His conscience was clear, wasn't it, on the matter? You know, these ones criticizing Peter here, they had a wrong focus. They were looking at the external. They weren't looking at the internal. And they can't. You know, we must be wary that we don't do the same. We must be wary that we're not like these Jews here and legalistic in our attitude towards each other. Secondly, now we see that Peter offers an ex- explanation. Peter offers an explanation. Verse 4 it says, But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, Peter now goes on to give to them a response. He responds to these ones criticizing his actions. Now, as I was thinking about this week, you know, Peter, he could have responded here by becoming extremely angry, couldn't he? Peter could have responded by becoming agitated, going on the offensive and attacking them. But to his credit, what does Peter do? He composes himself and he gives a calm and detailed response. You know, this really is amazing when we consider what Peter used to be like. Peter was the one who was known to be impetuous. He was quick to react, wasn't he? Quick to speak without thinking. It just shows how much God's changed Peter in a short period of time. But Peter here is very composed, he's calm as he gives this defense. Peter was well aware that only a few days or weeks earlier, he had had a similar attitude to the Gentiles. He had a similar attitude towards them. And so rather than criticize these brethren and argue with them, he patiently explains to them the events that have occurred. He goes through the whole story. And he doesn't leave anything out. You know, Peter doesn't drop a little bit off that might make him look better. He tells them the whole story. And in his defense here, he gives them two pieces of evidence. First of these is the vision from God. Verse 5, it says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, a sort of vessel descend, and as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners. 
it came even to me upon the watch uh, when I'd fasted, uh, fastened mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for no, nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me from, again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. Now, he starts out here by, with his first part of the defense, which is the vision of God. He tells them the vision. As I said, none of these men had been there to see this. None of them had seen this vision that Peter saw. You know, maybe they'd heard on the grapevine that Peter had had a vision. Maybe they'd even heard on the grapevine what the vision was about. But now Peter gives them a first-hand account, doesn't he? He gives them an eyewitness account to what he saw on the rooftop in Joppa. He declares to them how he saw this sheet filled with all kinds of animals descending from from heaven, clean and unclean animals. He tells them how God had commanded him to rise up and eat. Now Peter is even honest in telling them that at first he said no. Peter responded in the wrong way at first. And Peter tells them that the Lord had told him not to call anything common or unclean that God had cleansed. You know, with this retelling of the vision here, Peter really is giving them the same knowledge that God had given to him. You know, right now at this point in the chapter, they are at the exact same place that Peter was at the end of that vision, aren't they? They have the same knowledge that Peter has. And so they're wondering what it all means, just like Peter was. What does this vision from heaven, this great sheet, mean with all these animals, clean and unclean? And then Peter gives them the second piece of evidence. He goes on to explain the witness of the Spirit in verse 11 to 16. We won't read it just yet. But after telling them the vision here, Peter now relays the next part of the story. And the focus here is all upon the witness of the Spirit. It's all upon what the Spirit has done, how the Spirit has worked. See, Peter is trying to get them to understand that this was all of God. It wasn't him. He didn't make this decision. God led him to go to Caesarea and to preach under Cornelius and the others with him. Verse 12, starting verse 11, sorry, it says, And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me, and the spirits bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. Now, Peter says, the Holy Spirit told me to go with them. The Holy Spirit said, go with these three men, nothing doubting. It was God who led him to Cornelius. Peter was simply obeying. And Peter then declares that when he arrives at Cornelius' house and he finds Cornelius and the others there, they're eager for the truth. They're waiting for him. Peter tells these Jews how God had already prepared Cornelius' heart. Verse 13. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words, whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Now, Peter says, you know, the Spirit had been preparing Cornelius as well. He says, I arrive at Cornelius' house and I find a house 
where there's people ready to receive the truth. Because God has prepared Cornelius. God has been telling Cornelius to, t- to send to Joppa and fetch Peter so that Peter could tell him the truth. You see, the focus is the Spirit here, isn't it? The Spirit had prepared Peter. The Spirit had prepared Cornelius. He had worked this meeting. It was all of God, not of Peter. Verse 15, Peter then declares that he followed the leading of the Spirit and he preached unto the Gentiles. It says in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Peter says, I come to this house, I find Cornelius and these others all ready to hear the gospel. The Spirit told them that I'd tell them the gospel. And so I did, I preached. I followed the leading of the spirits. And the Gentiles got saved and they received the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost came upon them, bearing witness that this was of God. This was God's work. They were saved in the same way as the Jews. You know, the word of God had been fulfilled among the Gentiles. That's what Peter says in verse 16. He says, Then I remember, sorry, then remembered I the word of the Lord. How that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Now Peter says, When I saw them receive the Holy Ghost, I remembered the words of the Lord. I remembered that God said this would happen, that we would be baptized with the Spirit, and they have now received the same baptism as us. The same Spirit as came upon us at Pentecost, they've now received as well. See, God in that moment, with the witness of the Spirit, declared there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, Peter's whole defense here is to show that this was of God. This was God's leading. And the proof was in the sealing of the, these Gentile believers with the Holy Ghost. Now, Peter then concludes this defense with a question in verse 17. <clears throat> rhetorical question if you like he says for as much then as god gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed in the lord jesus christ what was i that i could withstand god now peter basically says if god is going to pour out his spirit upon the gentiles the same as upon us who am i to withstand god who am i to argue with the lord to question god God was the one who led him and directed him in all this. God was in control. And Peter says, if God wants to expand the ministry to the Gentiles, well, so be it. That's God's will. Who am I to argue with him? See, from the beginning to the end, this work was of the Lord. Peter was simply an instrument used by God. Therefore, for these believers to contend with Peter, to criticize Peter... Really, they were criticizing God, weren't they? That's the reality. They were criticizing. They were contending with God. You know, I think we can learn something here from the response of Peter to these believers. As we said, he didn't become agitated or impatient. But rather, he graciously explains the events to them. He, He graciously shows them how this is of God. Shows them that this is according to the word of the Lord, God's instruction. Now, beloved, likewise, when we are criticized, 
for doing what we believe is the Lord's work, then we need to be humble enough, first of all, to examine it and see if the criticism is warranted. And if it's not, then we need to respond graciously, don't we? We need to respond graciously with the word of God, proving that it's according to God's word. You know, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath. Indeed, the best response is like Peter to graciously turn people to God's word, show them the truth that we stand upon. A soft answer. Something we need to remember, isn't it? Because so often, how do we react? We go all defensive. We get all offended. And we react in the wrong way. We need to remember to react graciously, with patience. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Lastly now, just quickly, we see the critics are content. The critics are content. Verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they held their peace. And glorify God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. You know, to their credit, we're told in verse 18 that these ones who criticized Peter, you know, they listened to Peter's response and they accepted it. You know, at least temporarily they accepted. I say temporarily because, as we saw earlier, by Acts chapter 15, this issue is raising its head again. Okay? But at least for now, they respond in the right way. They have the right response and they hold their peace, it says. When they heard these things, they held their peace. In other words, when Peter asked that question in verse 17, they had no answer. The defense of Peter and the question that he posed leaves, leaves these critics speechless. They really had nothing to say. How could they argue with the work of the Lord? How could they argue with the leading of the spirits? They couldn't. And so they held their peace. You see, Peter had responded with the word of the Lord. And so they had no answer, did they? See, if we respond in the right manner, they have no answer. You know, they understood that Peter had gone to Cornelius' house because of God's direct leading. This was the work of the Lord, and the only response they could have was to hold their peace and then glorify God for his grace to the Gentiles. Verse 18 again <clears throat> says, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. You know, their response was the only response that they could give. They glorified God for God's grace to the Gentiles. They gave him the glory. They acknowledged the work of the Lord and glorified him. And beloved, this whole event here, as Peter stands before the believers in Jerusalem, teaches us about our own actions today. Beloved, we need to be careful that we're not like those of the circumcision, that we're not legalistic and judgmental, of others. You know, that we don't criticize others by what they do. As we said, we're not talking about moral law, we're talking about ceremonial, we're talking about things that we have an opinion on. Beloved, we need to understand that it's not those things that defile us, it's 
what comes from the heart as we disobey the moral law. That's what defiles us, not what we do. And because someone doesn't do exactly what we do, we have no right to judge them. And beloved, we need to understand that it's the heart that matters with God. It's what God's concerned with. So we need to be careful that we don't criticize when we don't know their hearts. Only God does. God is judge. You know, it also teaches us about our response when we face criticism. Beloved, we need to, like Peter, respond with a soft answer according to the word. Be humble enough to accept criticism and respond in the correct manner. You know, if we are in the right, acting according to God's word, then respond graciously with God's word. But you know, if we're in the wrong, and that happens too, if we're in the wrong, then we need to, like the critics in verse 18, be humble enough to admit it, hold our peace, and glorify God. Lord, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, once again for the book of Acts. Lord, for the many instructions that are given to us therein. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us, Lord, in this matter of uh, our judging of others. Lord, help us to realize, Lord, that you are judge. And Lord, that there are certain things that, Lord, we all have to make up our own mind concerning. They're all personal convictions. Lord, help us, therefore, not to judge others based on those things. Help us to hold our peace, Lord. Lord, when we face criticism from others, help us to respond in the right manner. To humbly accept it, respond graciously, Lord, or hold our peace if we are wrong. May we remember these truths, we pray in Jesus' name.